When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Bill, it's brilliant to get you back. You're one of my favorite people in the world to talk through big stuff with. And I think the interview that we had about a year ago, I think was one of my favorites of all time in the history of Real Vision. So no pressure on you this time then. Thank you, Raul. I'm delighted to be here. And the timing of our last talk was fantastic. (laughs) It was. So listen, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to think through this hypothesis that I've got. And I know you're exactly the right person to, to think through this with is I'm looking ahead and I'm looking at the amount of disruptive technology that's not in ideation phase, but in rollout phase, whether it's autonomous vehicles, whether it's EVs, whether it's distributed computing, whether it's um, cryptocurrencies and digital assets, uh, whether it's genetic engineering or genetic vaccines, or there are so many things that are kind of all in acceleration or exponential phase that I'm just getting a feeling that we're about to go through a period of change almost unparalleled in human history. I don't know, this is a very big way to start a conversation. And we'll talk about valuations and markets and all this stuff, but what what do you think? Because you've been on the ground and looking at this for a lot longer than I have. You know, I I totally agree with you. I I think we're seeing sort of a bifurcation of the economy and you know you've you've talked a little bit about platform companies which has been a phrase inside the tech world for a long long time you know so i'm going to mix a couple of things here you know one is kind of what makes for a an exponential valuation relative to the old stuff and what are the business models that sort of you know hyperfuel that so you know obviously we're in this kind of tech cycle or not just tech cycle we are in a market cycle that the world hasn't seen before ever with interest rates where they are, PE multiples where they are. So those multiples are going to richly reward things that have high growth. And they'll also richly reward things that have high growth in big markets. So from a tech perspective, I think what's happened is that we've moved from kind of smaller disruption, very disruptive still, but smaller disruptor into, into like small hardware markets into massive rapidly scaling disruption in consumer markets. So if you think about what you know tech was like when I started in the 80s, it was a world of, of reshaping the path of electrons in vacuum tubes, you know, so silicon. And yeah, there were some good sized markets there, but the rate of change was slow because it was physical production of things. And then it moved to kind of, you know, a little bit more hardware devices, software, and then it was all B2B. It was all technology being sold to technologists. Now, when there's a technology change, it can hit a billion consumers in a matter of months. That wasn't possible before. So 
You have this combination of the market effects rewarding things that grow. You have markets that are exponentially bigger than they were 20 years ago. And then you have rates of growth that are like a hundred times faster than they used to be. It's so it's all kind of adding up to what you're talking about. And you mentioned platforms, you know, so, so I think there's, there's a total change in the type of company that exists today. And I remember when I was in the Silicon business, I'd, I'd marvel at companies like Microsoft because their market cap per employee was 10 times what ours was in the Silicon companies. And I'd be like, why is that? And of course they had the margin structures they had, but why did they have those margin structures? Part of it was kind of monopoly positioning and all that. But part of it was also, if you think about the architecture of a company that is quote, a platform, the market cap per employee doesn't count all of the people making a living and adding economic activity to that platform company that are not on the payroll. So, you know, for every person in the world of Adobe, every person in the world of Microsoft, there's 25 to 100 people using their tools, making a living, contributing to that ecosystem. And it's moved uh, the boundaries around what, where the contribution happens have now expanded. So now you've got this whole world where there's, you know, zillions of people in open source adding value every day that accrues to certain companies. And those companies have very few employees per economic activity. And that is almost the definition of Metcalfe's law. You know, it's the number of users and the value that the users add to the network that makes these things so incredibly valuable. So we've gone from an age of producing a product and selling it to a market to creating a platform that allows everybody to either create economic benefits or other benefits on it. And that creates those network effects that, that, that are exponential, which is truly different. Absolutely, because it's it's moved from capturing sort of product activity to rich economic activity, and I think we're we're moving from a, an era of, as I said, moving electrons. It's just steering the flow of things to make devices faster, cheaper, smaller, with the element of deflation, right? So technology was still is, but very very much was totally just deflationary. You know, when you had the cost structure you had of, of vacuum tubes inside of computers and, and TVs and radios and things like that, the size, the power burn, the expense of building and maintaining those machines was enormous. And so when you could put it on a little piece of sand the size of your fingernail in, in the form of silicon, the prices went down astronomically. So there was always this fight because the companies using the new technology, their revenue was disappearing per unit but the volumes expanded greatly. So there was growth, but it wasn't the kind of growth we see today. When you move from electrons or steering electrons to steering bits, then you started to move information. And the information age, in the internet age, quote, information age, things got kind of lower friction. So productivity went up and the, the rate of deflation was still there, but limited to certain industries like telecommunications. And the other stuff, the asset utilization of physical things got higher because the information was more, more relevant to what businesses were doing. And then we've moved again from moving electrons, moving information in the form of bits. Now we're basically moving assets. So if you think about what's happening today, we're, we're, we're sucking assets into those bits and lowering the friction of transferring those. 
So it's not as deflationary. So back to your exponential theme, we were fighting ourselves in sort of deflating the industries we were going into. Now we're just exponentially increasing the rate of transaction and the size doesn't change. The size of the asset, the cost of moving it deflates, but the asset value itself does not. I mean, digital currencies and the digital asset universe is clearly one of the, is maybe even the epicenter of all of this change because this is the digital transfer, ownership, custody, and everything of value. You know, you've talked about this before, but you know, you're always got your eye on this space. How are you seeing this evolve now? You know, since we spoke, you know, we've got the rise of NFTs, the you know massive rise of DeFi. Um, I think we've got you know community um, tokenization to come. There's a huge amount coming in this space. How are you thinking through it all? So the, the, again, the timing of our last call was fantastic because I think it was summer of last year, and in a very, very brief moment in there, I mentioned that there was a little wave of NFTs coming and it would be around Dapper Labs. Uh, You know, it so happened that four years ago, I was one of the main angels that backed Dapper Labs and they had launched this product, CryptoKitties. So, you know, back to the journey of digital assets, you know, when I first got exposed to Bitcoin around 2010, it was profound because to me that, that was an extension of distributed computing that you had mentioned previously. You know, so I had I had spent my life basically w- watching this wave from mainframes to minis to workstations to PCs and ultimately smartphones, where the smartphone in your hand today is like 20 times more powerful than the personal computer you might have used in the early 90s. You know, so the the ability of all that processing to move to the edge, to be in everyone's hand, in everyone's pocket was just amazing because it enabled the transfer of a lot of things. Without that, you know, like if you had to carry a PC, a real PC in your pocket, we wouldn't have the world we had today. So you had to lay that framework. But then as, as the compute elements moved from centralized to decentralized, towards the end of the 90s, you started to see the first sort of breakthrough, totally disruptive peer-to-peer implementations in things that like Napster, or, you know, like Kazaa, the music kinds of things that then got applied to video. And, and you could see it. Applications distributed to the edge and the reconstruction of the compute model from big machines inside buildings to millions of blade servers that were, you know, kind of like a conductor in a symphony allocating things that changed the way data was handled, the way data was stored, Hadoop came out, you know, it was like, there's so many different things that, that were just a different model where you could have the power of many, many, many small elements working on stuff. So when Bitcoin came out, the paper was called, you know, peer to peer currency, because you had now these smart distributed computing elements in your pocket, and you could have little nodes running and maintaining a distributed database so that you could proof, you know, like proof of work, you could prove out uh, in a internet-like way where you couldn't destroy the network. Just like the internet can't go down if you dropped a bomb on some of the nodes, the processing that supports that currency or exchange of value was distributed, can't destroy it, everyone can participate. So that, that foundation is what you're talking about. Now you have the ability to encapsulate fundamental value, virtualized value, into a node that anyone could transfer at any time, borderless. 
And it, it's, it, you're right. It's like totally revolutionized asset transfer, you know, because if you think about what is, what is currency, there's a bunch of definitions for it, but um, it's kind of like, you know, you used to barter and now you, you represent the value in a third kind of system, which is that paper bill that represents the value of those items. As we've moved forward to digital currency, the friction of that has gone down. And if you think about Bitcoin, okay, so now wrapping it all the way back to that, you know, discussion about Dapper, NFTs. When when peer-to-peer came out and the network had these fungible Bitcoins, one way to look at what is a unique Bitcoin is that it's an NFT, right? So, so it's swappable for another NFT Bitcoin, but they're all uniquely identified assets. And as I rode that wave of early cryptocurrency stuff, when uh, when my friends at Dapper got you know got going on CryptoKitties, I was I was floored. I was like, this while it's a little weird, you know, cats and the internet always are a good combination. It's a little weird. It's a little playful, but it represents something foundational. So I was all in and I funded that one as an angel. And sure enough, you know, CryptoKitties took off as a low friction use case. And as that wave has progressed now, okay, so now CryptoKitties was so successful that it kind of broke the Ethereum blockchain. Ethereum couldn't really handle it. So they kind of learned everything they could about why Ethereum couldn't handle it. They made a list of all the things that were choke points and they created their own blockchain, which was the Flow blockchain and launched that last year or maybe a little bit before that and then tried to launch a couple of things to test it. And that resulted in NBA Top Shot. Talking about exponential, I have never seen a marketplace grow that fast. You know, from nil 60 days later, zero to 5 billion run rate. I mean, it was $14 million a day of, of GMV transactions on that one marketplace. And this completely unleashes a new layer of value that didn't exist, right? Because there was no value in this before because there was no way of realizing the value. That's the groundbreaking thing here is what you're doing is releasing value that was was locked and uh, un, unknowable beforehand. Yes, yeah. And that, this is what economies are about, right? How do you unlock value. And if you can unleash value, just allow economic empowerment for value creation, that's the key to stable society and economies, right? If people are busy making stuff and unlocking value, however they're going to do it, they're happy. You know, and if they're idle and unemployed, they're unhappy. You know, so I think this is this has got a lot of the brain power that might have been idle in the old structure economy that we had. It could have been like fomenting revolutions around the world, you know, but now they're productive and they're applying their energy to unlocking value. And everybody that's, you know, under a certain age and very fun in tech is having a blast, you know, and, and it's, it's like a, it's a good world in that, in that area right now. The other thing that I've been looking at is I think the log- logical conclusion and maybe arguably one of the biggest use cases of this all is I think that communities are, things are going to coalesce around communities and value is going to coalesce around communities. Whether it's a brand, whether it's an individual, whatever it may be, even a charity. And that in this world where you can now tokenize and create a shared incentive system amongst the the nodes, i.e. your customers, 
and the value driver and then get everybody to drive value within that, you create a new layer. How I'm thinking of it is you create a new layer above equity, which is a whole new extra layer of value that doesn't exist that you can create within communities. And that's for sports stars to musicians to great brands. I mean, I think this is a game changer and people don't realize it Absolutely. yet. I totally agree with you. You know, so, so the thing that, okay, so I'm going to go back to some foundational thought about communities and value exchange and then abstract to some things that have happened today that are actually already examples of that, but where the friction is getting lowered to greatly expand the markets. Okay, so if you think about what is a currency, it's, it's something that people agree has a certain value and are willing to exchange with each other because they trust each other or trust the backer of that piece of paper in, in the kind of the 1900s version of what is currency. Okay, so I've used this example before, but like, you know, when you think about when, you know, people got off the Mayflower and stepped on the forest land of North America and they drew borders around things on a, on a hand-drawn map and said, this is Connecticut, this is New York, this is Virginia. Because the people that rode on that boat with them were their friends and might've been of the same religion, they trusted them. So every single state had its own currency. They all defined their own currency. So it's kind of whatever your tribe is, whatever your group of believers is, you can have a value exchange. And it's basically community-driven value exchange. That's kind of one base layer. So so what, what's happening now is that behavior, which went away briefly for the US dollar for you know the gold standard for about 27 years, and then you know the petrodollar that we've been in for another 40 or so, now that's getting replaced by electrons instead of hydrocarbon because productivity has moved from oil, burning oil, to what you do with your electrons. And I've said this before too, which is if I had to give you the choice of give up your phone or give up your, your oil burning, you know, the thing that's important to you is, is electrons today. And yeah. so there's a foundational change in what creates productivity and currency is both community exchange and it's stored productivity in the World War II era. You, you, after World War II, nations that generated surplus needed to hoard oil, but they didn't want to move oil around. So they'd hoard the dollar that represented the purchase power of oil. So now these tokens represent electricity. And these tokens are basically economic alignment of interest across communities of interest, which goes to your point about brands. So for, for tens of years, we've had loyalty points. What is a United Airlines mile? What is a Starbucks point? They're all interchangeable for products that you think you will use. So it's kind of a reserve currency in a way for things that you might use. And so that is a precursor to, the, to what you just said, which is kind of what's an ICO? It's a community of interest that believes that that token representing something is, is valuable because somebody else in their community will take it. You know, so, so one of the companies I funded is a company called Tap Network. They run the loyalty program for Uber Eats and Warner Music. And they're making those tokens interchangeable into other things. So now there's marketplaces where communities of interest can intersect and there's liquidity. And anytime you have liquidity in a marketplace, you unlock value, period. Put a couple of questions on that. But what's also happening is this kind of change to this new system 
the the electron system, let's call it that, is happening at a pace of which we've never seen before. So it's currently growing at 113% a year as a kind of overall number of users, which is almost double that that the internet grew over an equivalent period of time. So this is unbelievable. And we're about to throw in DM into the middle of this with three and a half billion nodes on a network. And they will have their own community value proposition, which is DM. Uh, and that will be interchangeable with others. I mean, the pace that this is going to transform all business models, I think people are still arguing, should I buy Bitcoin or not? I think they're missing the picture, which is this is a complete transformation of all value system. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, and yeah, because it, it introduces liquidity. So when I started thinking about uh, the, you know, the transition from so Bitcoin to blockchain, okay, because first... You know, my first uh, exposure was, wow, peer-to-peer currency, that's really cool. And then it was kind of like, what can you do with it? And what can you do with the underlying technology? And then I started to think, wow, this is like TCPIP for assets. You know, so when you could used to have a, a, you know, a fax, I'd write something on a paper, stick it in a machine, digitize it, send it over an analog phone line at a very expensive rate through a monopoly telco, and it'd come out on the other side. And now you could just tweet it on a screen, type your words, drop it into a transport layer through internet, email, internet, boom, it pops over there like in just nanoseconds, you know? So, so the lowering of friction unlocked value. And I thought, wow, like if this is a TCP IP for assets, what can you do? And I got my head around that and I threw my first blockchain summit on Necker Island like six years ago. And I got Michael Casey who uh, wrote Age of Cryptocurrency uh, he was at the time the uh, global finance reporter for the Wall Street Journal. I asked him if he could come throw this thing with me, and I wanted to to get this economist to join named Hernando de Soto. And I don't know if you've ever read the book Mystery of Capital. No, but uh, it's a foundational piece that defines what is the fundamental building block of capitalism and why do things work in capitalist societies in the West, but not other places. And his thesis was in his world, it all went down to clarity of land title as an asset. Because if you if you were a squatter, you didn't have anything. If you had a clear line drawn around a little piece of land you owned, you could take that to the bank and mortgage it and get capital and start a store. And then you had this like network effect where you're you're leveraging that and taking the, the money and, and going and you know turning it into something. So I said, Hernando, I want to take Mystery of Capital and turn it into a software program. I want to basically you know automate your brain and turn it into a, a, a software stack where people could load assets onto it and then they could be used and smart contracts could be built. And, and I want to do this on this thing called blockchain. And he, and he said, what's blockchain? <laughs> and so, so I had explained it to him. Okay, so, so back to the unlocking of value, I explained it to him in this way because he had told me that he had bought a rug. And, uh, and I said, well, Hernando, think of this. It's like, you know, 
there's eBay, there's Mercado Libre where you bought your rug because he's, he's in Peru, Peru. I said, before that rug was listed, it had zero value. It was sitting in someone's garage. It wasn't worth anything. But as soon as they exposed it to a network, they took a picture of it, they listed it, they described it. Other people, communities of interest interested in rugs could, could see it. And suddenly it had value and you bought it for a few thousand dollars. So there was $2,000 of value creation out of nothing because it was connected to a network. So as you think about what does Dapper Labs represent with its flow architecture that is a very easy way to have quote NFTs, meaning the digital certification of an asset, whether it's physical or digital, then they can list something that is valuable to somebody, but nobody knew about it before. So bam, $14 million a day of transactions of little video moments just from the NBA, right? So that's just the NBA. I don't know what other leagues they will onboard at some point, but you can imagine every single league in the world has contacted them. You know, so if, I don't know, I'll make it up because I can't tell what they're working on, but you know, let's imagine that UFC's contacted them or the biggest soccer league in Europe or, you know, MLB or what have you, if they're all the same size as the NBA, does it go from 5 billion run rate to a hundred billion run rate? I don't know, right? So the the level of value creation and economic activity, it's it you can't you can't count it. It's so big. Have you also been following things like Chili's, which is Socios, which is the platform where all of the European football clubs, soccer clubs, have been going on and creating community tokens and giving people rights within their community to vote for, let's say, the kit that year. They have some community rights. That's been fascinating, which I think is also coming and what rally's been doing in the background as well i think has been interesting um i think they're still kind of in early phase are you following that kind of stuff as well because that's like an extension of nfts but it's like community rights it is because uh, you know i think what's happening now is like that we're in this i don't know if it's the first inning or the second inning but it's it's somewhere in that range you know maybe not even the first inning because not everybody uses nfts but but the unlocking of value and the exposure, yeah, it's funny, I, heard, I the eBay CEO the other day was on CNBC talking about how they're gonna get into NFTs. So that's kind of like ground zero. It's sort of like what assets can you expose in a more efficient network based on blockchain? And then once you have that, you can, because it's digital, assign all kinds of properties and all kinds of community incentives and governance structures around the items that are there. Some of that was already previously expressed in some of the ICOs that happened in 2017, 2018, where tokens you would buy would have certain characteristics, but now you're able to assign characteristics to assets. So if you think about the, the savings of labor ahead in some of the old world businesses, like, you know, and people have been talking about land title and title insurance and things like that, you know, and getting rid of that for years, but that is like, getting rid of the fax machine for an email or getting rid of, you know, Swift and uh, two or three days of, of waiting for your, your money to transfer, you know, through, through cryptocurrency. So I think there's going to be great efficiencies, both great efficiencies introduced into the system for a community action and also great functionality on top that produces other kinds of value that couldn't exist before. So here's a question 
the other thing that I see within this is that kind of move towards the metaverse, which is the kind of a way where we all live in a more immersive digital experience, whatever, however you want to define it. You know, the gaming has been down that. How are you thinking through the metaverse idea as well? Yeah, this is, uh, you know, so I, I literally was corresponding with Philip Rosedale yesterday. And Philip, um, if you know him, he was the creator of Second Life. And it was really through that interaction that uh, I really got exposed to digital currencies. And, I, and you know, thinking back to that era, you know, he launched that, that world um, in around 2000, 2001. And people didn't have anything to do. So I became Alan Greenspan Gollum. And he introduced the Linden dollar and there was a vibrant economy by 2006. People like the avatar Anse Chung were showing up on the cover of Business Week because she was doing digital work for other citizens of Second Life that wanted to dress a little better or have a little digital house and they would pay her in Linden dollars. And there were exchanges where you could take the Linden dollars and sell them for US dollars. And you know, it, I, I learned you know, a while ago that one of those exchanges was IGX run by this young kid, Brock Pierce. You know, so, so all of these things like intersected and set the stage for me learning about Bitcoin. And now we're in this world where the metaverse is coming back and uh, not even coming back, it's taking a real world form. So yes. in that time, it was very labor intensive to create a character that represented you. And then you'd walk around and try to find something to do. Now, you know, in some ways, if you think about what's happening today, there's a couple of vectors approaching this still in kind of like a gen zero, gen one way. But one of the next big marketplaces that Dapper is launching is with Genies. So you, you can read about it. There's a press release on it, but there you, you create a digital avatar and those can be NFTs and you can transact and create an economy around your digital representation. That's a little bit of a 2D model, but on the other end of that, we are virtualizing people now through the internet. So think about this moment of productivity we're having on Zoom. What would it have taken to do this interview without Zoom or without things like Zoom, right? I mean, it, the, the cost of and time sunk to get on a plane, to fly somewhere, to meet in a studio, to do something and record it, it's astronomical compared to this. Yeah. So, so Zoom, in a way, is like a digital marketplace that allows people to virtualize themselves and transact. Totally agree. And so I think as and all these forms are going to merge at some point because now there are metaverses where you can kind of enter and represent yourself, not just with a 2D avatar like a genie, but with a you know a more full-blown 3D construct. And the, the interface to that is still a little heavy, you know, 3D glasses in some cases or other things like that, but it's going to get better and better and lower friction over time. Yeah, at, at a number of levels, it's kind of captured my imagination. It's, somebody sent me something. Um, it was the guys who, it was the family office of the guy, one of the guys who started Nintendo. Their website is this, like this 3D little metaverse. I saw that and was like, oh my God, that's amazing. And then somebody said, no, just have a look at, let's say, crypto voxels. And what they gave me, which kind of changed my entire perspective and all, was as opposed to having a web link, it was basically a coordinate. Like I could drop a coordinate for you of my house if you're trying to find it. It was a coordinate and I was in somebody's art gallery. 
with music playing and videos on the wall. And right. I'm like, oh my God, websites aren't going to exist. Yeah, it's the virtualization of everything. Okay, so so let me talk about two levels of that, right? So one early example of virtualization of an asset that everybody in the finance markets will understand is a futures contract, right? So if you think about a pork belly in the old, old, old days where a farmer is kind of trying to sell his, you know, load of stuff on the truck, the physical movement of that item, the transacting of that item was pretty heavy. And then to try to protect himself from commodity price swings, forward contracts, futures contracts would start to evolve where he could sell them before he delivered. And what ended up happening was that piece of paper representing the physical item could trade on the CBOT. And for every time that physical pork belly moved, the, the paper contract might move 18 to 200 times in the 80s. So, so in a way, you kind of expanded GDP by 18 to 200 times by virtualizing the asset to a piece of paper. So now what's happening is you're moving from paper assets to digital assets that are more directed in where they reach because you've got these sub-communities of interest that are voracious about their consumption like the NBA moments on Top Shot. And so the, that early futures contract is kind of representative of what's happening today where every asset in the world can be virtualized. Its digital certificate representing that asset is trading, right? So the, the NBA Top Shot, where does that video clip sit? It can be anywhere the digital certificate moves around. You're seeing now the physical assets starting to get onboarded. So imagine like, you know, cherry auctions, like uh, you know, uh, a pair of shoes from a certain basketball player from a certain game, or uh, a wonderful piece of art that could sit in a room with a webcam on it, and the the ownership certificate that's authenticated by the warehouse that owns it can now float, and that piece can move around at the same velocity that a futures contract did. And if you look at events like your event, you know the crypto event you threw. You know, people are everywhere. The event is sort of virtualized. Burning Man, which is a physical event historically every year, last year they were forced to try something new. You know, so I did do some things with uh, to, to show them some new technologies that could make future experiences fun. And imagine uh, a map of the playa instead of actually having to go to the playa and where the art installations would be in a physical world. Instead, there's that geo drop pin that you described and you like move your cursor, click on that and blam, you drop into the artist studio wherever he is building that art with a bunch of webcams that you can control. And so you can like move around in the room, you can change the focus, you can change the direction and you could visit every art studio in the world from every cool artist that's building something for Burning Man before it gets there. And then the spatial audio that's available today and Philip Rosedale and I were, were demoing uh, spatial audio because that was part of his next generation world, High Fidelity. You could basically- What is spatial audio? audio? Oh, it's 3D audio. So the feeling that uh, uh, on the playa, like if you imagine a map of the playa and then your, your representation and I are standing on that map, talking to each other, chatting, and we're actually talking through our microphones and we can hear each other because you can hear who's near you louder than other people, 
right? So we're having a conversation just like it'd be in real life. And an art car drives by on the left-hand side. You'll hear and feel that audio. Oh, as opposed to this 2D. So if somebody would come onto this Zoom call, they're the equivalents of us because it's 2D. Exactly. Three. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, that's yeah, fascinating. A very basic technology that it someday may get embedded into all kinds of things. You know, so it's it's audio and video and your avatar. So he had developed that for high fidelity so that when you entered the new world of high fidelity, as you're standing, as your avatar standing and you have headphones on and someone spoke on that side, you could kind of, if you close your eyes, you knew where, where, where that avatar was relative to you. But all of these things are, you know, they're just little, that's just one component of many things happening in the world of metaverses. I assume that we're going to be earning living, a living in the metaverse. And that kind of democratizes the ability to earn certain types of living because you can be in Ethiopia or you can be in Seoul and you can have equivalent access to generating certain types of income. So do you think people are going to earn income in the metaverse? Oh, you know what? They already have been. You know, so so people did earn income in Second Life, and again, that was early, early behavior. But as we move forward, it's going to be profound in about ten years, or maybe less. You know, so when you look at the generation of kids on Roblox today, that's one example. You have uh, so if if you've ever been on Roblox, you basically have a platform where you as a user of Roblox can also be a contributor to the economy. And they don't call it an economy, but, but you can create your own world. And so Roblox is basically a whole bunch of worlds that all these kids have created and they invite other kids to come in. And they're they're open, many of them, so anyone could come in. So it's a series of worlds on this platform and people basically make money. You know, some of them, there's a price of admission. You know, so you've got people all over the world that are getting trained to basically live in virtual economies at the age of 10, you know, and, or, or younger in some cases. So, so I think there's an expectation coming from this next generation that they don't ever have to go to a physical office. They don't ever have to work for a company. It, the tools to create their own worlds, their own economies are on the screen of their computer today. We didn't have that growing up. And it's it's quite profound. Like, you know, we used to have to go and, you know, make things and show up at a company or, or do food service or whatever it was, sell clothes, you know, at somebody else's place, you know, but now all the tools to create your own job, your own workplace, your own economy, and your own world are right in front of you. Creating a new world is another thing I've been thinking through is platforms as we know them won't exist in the same 2D world because you and I can create, I can create my Rouse finance room and I can have a Bloomberg thing, I can have video, I can have podcast playing, I can have a stack of PDFs on, on my virtual desk, I can have my prices, I can have everything with one click that exists everywhere I want it to do. And so that kind of gets rid of even the notion of needing windows and stuff. It's kind of a, a whole weird thing that we can have whole different setups of our lives in this virtual world that actually makes us more productive, puts everything together. Well, and you have your own audience, which is your own community, and you can have your own currency, right? right. So you could literally issue your own Raul coin or whatever it is. You know, whether it's a loyalty program or it's the the way you subscribe to additional content. You know, so you're going to see a fragmentation 
of the economy into all of these little buckets that add up to one you know, large productive economy because all of the currencies of each of these will be interchangeable and exchangeable in other places where there's connection points where you have a member of your community that's a member of a different community and they want to change points. You know, but it, it's the, the rate of growth of economic activity, it could totally inflect in the next 10 years. And that's been my hypothesis. Just looking at this part, I'm thinking that this could be a trend rate of growth change. Yes, we've got offsets of aging populations, a bunch of other slowdowns, debt-based economies, but this feels huge. And interesting enough, I've got a call after you with um, Mark Cuban. Mark reached out and said, I've seen your stuff on, on all of this. And I, don't, and I said, I think this is new GDP. This is discovering the Americas. It's brand new GDP. And he said, I'm not sure it's new GDP. Isn't it taking from the pie of existing GDP? So I don't think that's the case. What do you think? Because I need to speak to him after, after I speak to you. So I, I want to tell him. I think it's totally new GDP being created that is not yet accounted for. So the pie gets bigger because it was non-released value. Yes. And, and the government doesn't know what it is. Right. So how do you measure the GDP of Roblox. It doesn't show up in any statistic, but I don't know the number of hours that are being consumed on Roblox, but it's it's a lot. Yeah, when you get to a place like Epic Games, I mean, this is now monstrous. It is, and the value of, of Robux being, you know, exchanged or whatever, I you know, how do you count stuff like that, right? I don't know that the cryptocurrency volumes and stats yet are in the GDP numbers that show up. I, maybe they're counted. I don't know. But there's so many things now that are not measured in dollars. They're trying, the government's trying to, you know, come back and account for all that stuff because you want to tax it for, you know, and that's that's fair because we all want to contribute to the greater good of the world. But a lot of the stuff, the mechanism to account for it doesn't really exist. You know, what what's a Farmville credit? You know, I don't know how many people were playing Farmville. But, you know, the, the movement of the little Farmville tokens, does that get counted? You know, I don't know. I guess this goes to the question of what is the definition of economic activity? Is it just a dollar-based purchase of something from, you know, the categories that uh, the, the government statistics show? Or, or is it, you know, a kid doing something on Roblox for another kid? It, 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 I don't know if it, it should be counted, but they're not being counted. So, so I think this is why, partially why, going back to your thing, we're seeing this bifurcation of the economy where there's platform companies. Platform companies, by definition, are their own economies, right? So, so what is the Apple economy? It's a lot of people that they kind of work in that world of Apple. It's like its own country. It's it's. It's profound because you've got these economies forming around brands now that are are like virtual countries. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, I mean, I completely live in the Apple world. I mean, completely. I mean, everything I do now is driven by that because it's so interconnected and it connects, creates all the connection points for me that it creates massive value. Um, and that's without it being a traditional platform like Facebook. It's not a n network, but what it is is a platform that, that creates endless added value. 
Yes. Okay, so we talked about the digital kind of digital asset world and how game-changing this is. What else are you looking at? I mean, you were early seeing Zoom, which arguably is part of that same digitization of the world. What other exponential trends are you identifying that you think are happening over the next 10 years? Because, I mean, that's what you're good at. You spot these things early. Some you don't get right, but some you get spectacularly right. So what are you looking at now that you think, okay, this is all about to go exponential? Well, you know, and and this word exponential matters because in the layer of the funding stack that I exist, I am looking for massively asymmetric risk if it works. Because, you know, here I am a seed angel investor working with young young and some middle-aged entrepreneurs too that are basically starting interesting projects where I'm counting on, you know, that if it works, it's going to like change everything because it redefines an economic layer. And in that bucket, you know, I think one of the areas that is totally, totally due for a remake is healthcare, right? Just mm. the general inefficiency of the healthcare system. And I have a little project. I took the main data scientists out of a little bit of a notorious company called Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> and they were really good at what they did in I data bet, science. Yeah to understand patterns of data and steer things so they could get engagement and reaction. And, and I teamed up with them to help create a company called dyad.net. And dyad basically is applying their data science skills to transforming the efficiency of healthcare operations from a data perspective. And so I think on our last call, we talked about the power of data science and how Old companies that didn't use data science versus in a perfect examples, retail, JCPenney, Sears, they, they didn't know what they had. That inventory is floating that gets written off every year. Amazon and Walmart are basically data science clouds with products at the end where they know where everything is. They're living knowledge aware clouds of products that when there's a shortage in one area and too much in another, the thing moves. So the working capital model is transformational compared to the old ones. So the old ones went bankrupt and Walmart and Amazon didn't, and they're just still grown, right? So, so that same effect is going to be applied to every type of business where there's things moving around, whether it's healthcare records or bills or whatever, because who ha- whoever has it is going to live and who doesn't is going to die. And so it's interesting now that these companies are very aware. You know, there's a, there's a, public company called Change Healthcare, and it's a $7 billion market cap company. It's interesting to see the partnering that's going on because all of the bigger companies now are starved of innovative young people because everyone wants to go in a startup. So they're having to partner with these young people because the best ones can't be hired. And so Change Healthcare, for example, through a, a startup competition where they invited hundreds and hundreds of companies, picked a top 50, reduced it to a top 12, and picked one winner that was given access to their data, to their data lakes for healthcare plans. And it happened to be my company, Diet. You know, but, but anyway, so now you're going to combine a rich data set with data science techniques and a platform that can unlock a ton of value in the same way we were describing about unlocking value before. So I think we're just at the fringe of something that might happen five to six years from now where there's a total change in the efficiency of that area. Another area that I think is gonna to have to change and will be massive when it happens is power, electricity generation and consumption and the way it's handled. So if you think about what happened when the telco 
industry deregulated. Used to have these like fixed landlines, lots of money invested in that infrastructure. And then once you could kind of cut up the information flowing on those telephone lines into little chunks that had identifiers on them, headers, footers, you know, so that you could know where, you know, multiplex a lot of things onto a line, have them come in and break out. Then you had ISPs and the internet. So any kid in a garage could buy a router, stick it on the phone line and become his own phone company selling data services to the whole neighborhood. And you went from one phone company to tens of thousands of phone companies in a few months. And in that era, there was a company in the 90s called Portal Software. They were the billing system that every ISP would buy the software. So, you know, I could charge you if you were down the street for the, the amount of bandwidth you were using. That company went from nothing to $10 billion in, you know, market cap in no time. So I funded a company that does something like that called Power Ledger. They're out of uh, Perth, Australia. And if you think about what's happening in power, we're finally at the point now where if you look at the cost curse on the cost of energy production by burning long chain hydrocarbon carbon molecules and coal or whatever else, versus solar or versus wind. We're at this transition point now where anybody can put a solar panel on the roof and be a producer. That's like that ISP. We're entering a world now where you're gonna have tens and tens of thousands of little power companies and you just need the regulatory change like we did in the Telecom Act of 1996, at least in America. Other places don't have those things. So, so there's gonna be places where peer-to-peer energy production and consumption just blows up like crazy and everybody is an economically productive unit. If this happens in Africa, look out. It's going to be very, very big. And also, if you say, rightly say that we're moving into an electron world, then the more you free up the electrons, the more you free up the economy. You do. It's like, you know, yeah, imagine a world where, you know, if you think about what the oil economy was, it was very concentrated in a few places. And only those who had control by armies or regulation or physical owning the land, they had economic productivity. The CapEx was pretty heavy. It was hard to get into the business. Now it's like peer to peer. Anybody can be a producer at some scale. And in large population sets where you didn't have a lot of the, you know, the legacy stuff, you're going to have a transformation in the same way you know, when, when phone companies were built in America with landlines, the embedded infrastructure and the legacy wanting to keep that going prevented America for a little while from being a leader in mobile, which sprung up in, you know, Scandinavia and, and Southeast Asia first because they didn't have all those landlines and some of those countries are a bunch of islands. You know, so I think as we move into this world going forward where the older infrastructure doesn't really exist, the new stuff that gets put in is going to grow at a much faster rate and be much more economically distributed. Because they all follow Metcalfe's law then, because you're taking it away from a single node and creating multiple nodes and networks that coexist with each other. So of course the, the, the rate of change goes from linear to exponential. Yeah, and then you know, think about the software economy too. It, the software economy, it has become a big part of the GDP. And, you know, it used to be in the physical economy, people had to make things to have something physical to sell. Now there's a bunch of bits that get downloaded and you pay for it. And, you know, Microsoft makes a lot of money doing that. You know, it's actually quite astronomical. And if you think about how software development has changed and what's going to happen next, you may or may not know Andy Bechtelsheim, 
but he was one of the founders of Sun Microsystem. He wrote the first $100,000 check to Sergey Brin and Larry Page for Google. Wow. But he became an executive at Cisco. So Andy Bechtelsheim, myself, and Eric Yuan, who founded Zoom, we were among the first three angels in a company called Archipelago, which, uh, which is a fascinating concept. So if you think about the modern economy and software, it used to be that you'd have to develop as a developer, you'd have to like understand something and write new code and you'd have to like write a book. You'd write the first thing and it was labor intensive and hard. Now, software development is no longer writing books. It's permission plagiarism. It's copy paste of other people's paragraphs and you're swapping variables in and out, right? So the world of productivity today in the fourth industrial revolution is really all about software. The marginal incremental productivity comes from software. And now you've got all of these bits of code out there in all these repositories, whether it's GitHub or GitLab or a specialty Zebra, you know, code bases or whatever these things are that there's lots of them. No one knows what's in there. Like there's some rudimentary cataloging of that stuff, but it's like walking into the world's largest warehouse with boxes of gears and engine parts with no labels imagine and but you know that they're there and you don't have to make the gears you just have to piece them together and reassemble so imagine a clear categorization of all that stuff where you can walk in and you know where it all is and you just say give me that give me that give me that give me that pop, 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 done you know so i think the rate of increase if the search navigation discovery functions are good is going to totally change because well, then you put an AI layer on top, and yes, then it becomes ridiculously powerful. Yes, so we're on the verge of that too. And when I say verge, I think in my last thing I said, typically when I think through something, I have to wait seven years to, to actually to for it to like kind of be time. And so this is one I funded last year. You know, I think it's going to be a while. You know, but I think uh, I think these are the kinds of things that I think will be, you know, massively disruptive. We've seen some disruptive technology, obviously, come. Why have we had such bad GDP growth? I think it's not counted. Well, I think, I think it's the two things that I mentioned before. A, a bit of it is deflationary. Yes. Right? So, so it's this constant tension between um, lowering the cost of, of whatever the economic activity is because it's become more efficient and then the elasticity of the market when that unit of whatever it is is lower priced and the adoption rate can go up, but then you've got to get people's behavior to, to attach to that. And there's a little bit of a generation gap, right? So I think above a certain uh, break point, the, the user friendliness or the, the user familiarity with compute devices is just not there. Uh, and I think under a certain age, it's like no friction. You know, so I think that will add to the exponential nature too, because we're getting to a point that, that at some point, everybody is facile and it's like very natural. And you see it in kids today. You know, like you, you take a kid to a, a bank to deposit a check, and like, why do you go there? What 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 is that building? Why why don't you just use your phone to take a picture? Well, they sent me a check, but you can you can still take a picture, deposit it, can't you? 
well, yeah, then why do you go to the ATM? Well, I'm kind of used to it. It's like the, the bank bank branches are like museums to them. They don't, they have no idea why you'd actually walk in. I mean, museums are very valuable, by the way. I love museums too, yeah. but I'm meaning that they're like historic icons that they don't know what they're for. And I guess one of the things also is if you're replacing old with new, even though the new is much more productive, it comes at lower prices. So even for volume adjusted, you're still destroying an industry next to it. So it's a replacement factor for the time being. And as you said, there is also, I think, the offsetting of the baby boom generation that's so large that they're non-adopters of a lot of this. So they're marginal adopters. But once the baby boomers come through the, you know, through the other side of their life cycle, you end up with, okay, now total adoption everywhere. So it's like in the US, there's 76 million people who are baby boomers. And yes, some of those adopt this. But as they change and don't become or don't even need productive assets because they're in their retirement years, et cetera, then suddenly the rate of change can, can increase. And that feels like, I think the average baby boomer now is 68. Wow. So, I mean, you're, you're getting right there, you know, yeah. at the point where they're almost all about to come out of the labor force, which is going to make the labor force participation rate numbers look awful for a period of time now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to be a bit of a shock to the economy because none of these guys are earning a living anymore. They're depleting income, so that's quite deflationary. But we've now got this massive offset. I was I was really fearful of how the hell are we going to get through? Like when my father retired, he immediately dropped his spending by 60%, 70% because he didn't know how long he was going to live for. So therefore, did his bucket of money, will it give him 30 years, 20 years? You know, and the fear of running out is the big thing, right? But it kind of feels like the offsetting of that deflationary lack of consumption is going to be driven now by this massive technology and the bringing of all of these young people into a new way of earning a living. Because again, yeah. it was like, what's the job mismatch here? Now it's not, we're creating new jobs in different worlds. Yeah. And, and it's clear also, while there's that deflationary pile in the, in the baby boomer era, the newer ones, the rate of growth of the economic elements when they hit is astronomical. I mean, growth rates today on some things, they would have never been comprehended 20 years ago. And I think, you know, digital technologies, the, the way I invest in things, you know, it's, 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 I can't say it's totally cookbook, but what I'm typically looking for is how do I find an emerging use case and use digital technology to lower the friction to that use case. And if you can lower the friction, you're gonna get more usage. And then you couple that with making it very replicable, number two, and then third, make it very scalable. So all of the companies that I fund have that set of characteristics, whether it was Zoom or Dapper Labs or Canva or what I wanna do with Dyad or uh, Power Ledger. It's sort of like get that new use case, make it super easy to use, make it easily repeatable. And when it goes repeatable, make it super scalable so it happens fast. And because you can set things up for that today, and in fact, you have to or you won't win, the rate of growth when they grow is astounding compared to anything you could have done 20 years ago. And the size of markets, I am so happy about that. Like, you know, when we were making semiconductor chips, I was at LSI Logic, we had the chipset for the PC Junior, IBM PC Junior. And it was, you know, IBM was lion's share of the PC at that time. 
and a big order might've been a million units. You might've had it in a solid base of a few million PCs trying to sell a graphics card and you'd be, oh, I might get 20% market share. It might be 200,000 or a million units for the whole year, right? And if you, if you were a software developer making Lotus 1-2-3 like Mitch Kapoor was, huge hit. I'll get 40% of every computer out there, you know, all the computers out there. I might sell a few hundred thousand units for the year, for the year, right? At, and you'd have to sell the software to like $100 a copy, you know, and, and that's like a day. Now, if you get a good hit product, kablam, you know, so the markets are truly exponentially bigger. The ability to reach those markets truly exponentially easier today. The distribution mechanisms of everything like an Apple store, holy, wow, those didn't exist at that time. You know, so I think big market, high growth rate, high multiple, wherever that level set is with interest rates and parts of the economy are gonna continue to just explode upward on us even in the face of deflation. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we, you and I last spoke, the obvious example, the home run that you just had was Zoom. There was a new technology allows everybody to digitally represent themselves so you and I can chat, right? So it's game changing, it's very easy. And then suddenly the set of circumstances for the world change and it gets mass ridiculous adoption. Well, how fast was the change of customer acquisition at the kind oh of friend? Yes, that was, that was remarkable. I was totally blown away. I mean, yeah, it was in December. I remember the year before COVID really was being recognized because, you know, COVID had existed, but people didn't really know what uh, it was going to be. I think that year ended with uh, Zoom's infrastructure being set for about 10 million meetings a day, which was a lot of meetings given, you know, the company's progression over time. And I remember that December, sorry, the next February, things really started to spike. And that month of February, it jumped to 200 million meetings a day. And, and I was texting with Eric Yuan. I was like, wow, this is crazy. I was like, you know, when I funded you, I felt like my life changed because I really could be anywhere and work anywhere. And I'd, you know, hang out in Perth, Australia and fund companies like Canva. And I could be here, you know, when I funded Dapper Labs, I was reminiscing with the guys the other day. I was on a ship getting ready to leave a port in Geraldton, Australia. To get to Geraldton, you got to fly from here in San Francisco area, you know, like 20 hours to, you know, Singapore uh, and then an overnight or take a break and then fly another six hours to Perth. And then you get to drive seven hours north to Geraldton. And I'm on a ship about to leave. And Rome, who started Dapper, is like, hey, we got to schedule a call. So, so I'm talking to him off of Zoom on a ship, you know, and we worked out the deal to fund Dapper Labs. You know, it was all because of Zoom. But anyway, so my world had become very free and virtualized and I could spend the year kiteboarding all over the place and fund companies anywhere. It was just grand. And I was texting with Eric Yuan and I said, you know, Eric, I didn't realize how fun life was going to be. And now there's 200 million people following me, you know, and then, and then the next month, it was 300 million meetings a day in March. And I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. And I was like, I've just lost my competitive advantage. (laughs) (laughs) What's interesting to me in this is, so we get to the phase where Zoom explodes, right? And 
and everyone goes, this is excessively valued. And what is now becoming clear to people and was clear to you when you and I spoke is the use case that we have now is only a fraction of what this network could be used for because you've created a giant network. And it's a network built around, happens to be video, but it's, it's a digital network. So what is the future value of that? That is the value of networks. It's not about the single original use case. Amazon was never about books. Yeah. And Zoom is never about this. No, it's a platform now. Okay, we talked about platforms. So it's just so delightful to see what's happening with the platform. Okay, so you may or may not have seen announcements in the past where Zoom announced that they're developing an app store and an SDK software developer kit so people can bolt on. And just last month or a few weeks ago, they announced a venture fund. So on the uh, uh, so they've been onboarding little groups because there are a lot of developers building things on top of Zoom. And I've funded four or five of them, you know, whether it's like class.edu, they've changed their name to class tech class.com, they did get that URL, you know, to there's all kinds of applications being built that are vertical communities because people do part of community building is communications and communications, fundamental to communities. Once you have communities, you have commerce and you have vertical communities around different topics that are self-generating economies themselves. So, so in a way, Zoom is enabling a set of communities to be built around the world by communities of interest where the nodes might be all over the place, but now they can meet easily where they couldn't before. And when they announced the Zoom uh, the app developer fund, they put a little web page up where people could you know, type in an application and what they're building. Within a few days, there were 200 companies. So it's, it's, I think, you know, I don't know if it's going to be as big as an Apple app store. It's like, you know, that's like really, really hard to get to, but, but everybody uses Zoom. And there are so many communities of interest now that can empower themselves and create things. There's little technologies to allow transactions. Like I funded a little thing called Pledgeling. And so if you were to hold a, a little call here and you wanted to raise money for a cause, You'd click this plugin; it would be embedded, and then on the window of the Zoom bar, it would it would say, "Oh, do you want to donate to this? You know, donate now." And then you click click on it, and it sends a text message to your phone. You put in the amount, and then on the sidebar, it says, "Raul Paul just donated X to this charity." You know, and so so and they power they power Zoom, they power Clubhouse. Just wait, wait till we all have digital wallets, and that becomes entirely frictionless. Oh, super easy then. Yeah, yeah. So the unlocking of all kinds of economic activity, it's been happening through digital technology and it is accelerating. So I do agree, it's exponential. Yeah, and yeah, as the final summer, I think Zoom is the great example of people misunderstanding because they linear think what the potential future value is of a network. Yeah. So they get it at first, they go, oh yeah, Zoom's taken off because a bunch of people were stuck at home. No, yeah. no. Zoom has created a massive network, which will now undergo network effects, and therefore the value goes exponential along with the use. And totally change the way people live and work, right? So, so and we talked about this deflation versus rate of growth thing before, and the tension between those two and producing GDP. It's interesting, I, I, as I look at the deflationary side effects of Zoom, they're interesting to think about because there are a bunch of companies I know 
where, you know, younger companies where they might've had a, uh, some semblance of office space and they used to have everybody show up and they came to the realization during this couple of years, you know, I do want to have an office, but I don't need everybody there. So they might've given up 80% of their fixed costs in real estate to just have the executive team that drives the functions meet and everybody else can be wherever they want. You know, and then you're seeing these other announcements, like I think Google said 20% time can be remote now. You know, so, so the fixed cost every month of the real estate that people are paying for these startups where the cash is super precious, gone. And think about running a business where you had to fly salespeople around to go close deals. You know, I mean, very expensive and gone. You know, so it's become perfectly acceptable now to, to have your first meeting on Zoom. It used to be that you'd feel like you had to meet a person in person and continue the relationship on Zoom. Don't have to do that anymore. You know, so, so it's interesting to see how the cost structure and efficiency of capital is going to be, it's going to become much, much more efficient. The application of capital to the business creation and running operations because of Zoom too. So I don't see people like saying, oh, COVID crisis is over. I'm not going to use Zoom anymore. Sorry. It's just not going to happen. Bill, look, fascinating. This, yeah, it's just, we're just all really lucky to live in these times. These times are exciting. You know, we've been living in a world of like this broken financial system and a lot of pessimism, but we're starting to see now that there is the, the kind of optimistic, the the call option is becoming more valuable than the put, which is a nice world to be in. Yeah, I love that phrase. That yeah, that, and you know what? When I was at a venture capitalist at IVP, the founder Reed Dennis used to say, "You know, I honestly don't know a lot of really happy, wealthy pessimists." Right. So, so there's a lot to be said about going through life optimistically. And that phrase of it's becoming the call option and the put is not so valuable anymore. I love it. Bill, fantastic as ever to speak to you. Thank you so much, my friend. And I'll speak to you again soon. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com.